Good morning again. Thanks so much for joining us online this morning. Uh, my name is Bryce and I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And uh, if you are, whether you're regular or whether you're new with us, we would love to know that you're here. Uh, would you leave us a like or a heart or a, a thumbs up? Uh, drop a comment, say hi to um, other friends that are worshiping with us online this morning. It's kind of our digital greeting time and uh, we, um, as much as we are still separated, we want to we have the sense that we are worshiping together. God calls us together as his people and uh, we are worshiping together in, uh, in spirit, if not uh, bodily this morning. So please uh, let us know that you're here. We would really appreciate that. Also want to remind you that we are gathering for prayer on Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. over Zoom. And uh, we would love to have you join us for that. I also just wanted to take a minute to um, acknowledge the fact that this is the first Sunday of the month, the first Sunday of August, and it's the Sunday, it's our practice as a church to celebrate the Lord's Supper the, uh, on, on the first Sunday of the month. And so um, going forward, we're going to continue to do that, but if you're, still, if you're at a place where you are um, not uh, comfortable gathering with us in person as we're meeting in, uh, at Cordova Park on Sundays and you're here with us online, uh, we totally understand that, but we also don't want you to be missing out for months on end uh, in celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And so we would love to uh, give you the opportunity to have us bring communion to you at home. And we'll do that in a way that is as uh, socially distanced and, and safe and sanitized as we possibly can. Um, please just let me know. I, I will be sending out an email uh, ahead of time and you can just hit reply and let me know and we will... Uh, make that happen for you. We're also going to pause at this point in our service to uh, pray for our offering. Our offering is uh, part of our act of worship. It's part of the way that we give back to God out of what he has given to us and we partner him with him in the work that he's doing uh, in the world. And so our offering goes to support the expenses of our of our church here in South Orange County as well as uh, some of the small ways that we're able to partner with others financially. Thank you for those of you who have uh, continued to give. Uh, you are welcome to give online at resoc.life. There is a button there that says giving and you can set up an online donation there. And so with that said, let me pray uh, for our offering this morning. Oh God, all that we have is yours. You are our provider, you are our sustainer, you are the one who gives us life and breath. You give us um, our jobs, you give us our sustenance. And so God, we pause now to give you thanks for all that you've given for us. And uh, we return just a small token of what you've already provided us with to say thank you. Thank you, God, for giving us life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are continuing our series through 1 Peter that we're calling Resilience. What does it look like to live with, with faith and with wisdom and with grace in the midst of a deeply uncertain time? Uh, 1 Peter is our guide in this, in this journey. And so this morning we are continuing. It's really part two of a, of a, a two-part sermon a series on freedom what the Bible says about the nature of Christian freedom. Uh, we looked at the big picture last week. We're going to look in a little bit more detail 
this week at what Peter has to say about Christian freedom. So if you would stand with me, and I'm going to read 1 Peter 2, uh, starting at verse 16, and then into chapter 3. Verse 16 of First uh, Peter 2. Peter says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, we ask for your presence with us, for your wisdom, for your guidance as we give our attention now to your words, words which probably strike us as odd. Oh God, would you help us to hear your voice, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, I want to begin by asking you a question this morning. Are you all in? Are you all in? I told you a couple weeks ago, my, one of my sons and I recently went on a, a canoe trip together. Um, and as we began, the guys who were leading our adventure uh, circled everybody up and, and kind of gave us some instruction. And then, and then they said, okay, we are, we are about to head off. We are going to have an adventure. It is going to be a fun time. Uh, there are going to be some challenges that we're going to overcome. It's going to be a great time together, but what we want to know from you right now is this. Are you all in? Are you all in? What about you? Are you all in? I came across a quote this week. It says this, No matter what cathedrals we wander into, 
whether the gods on the wall are Jesus or Jack Daniels, we are all looking to let go. We are all looking to lose ourselves into the night and into the wonder. Deep down, we want to be all in somewhere. Are you all in? To be all in is this whole, is to be wholehearted in everything that we're doing and to experience a sense of wholeness because we have given ourselves completely to something. But I'm noticing as uh, I talk with friends, as I talk with many of you, as I, as I uh, talk with neighbors, there, there is this sense that as we continue through 2020, you know, now into the month of August, and just this, you know, everything from the pandemic to the, the just unrest and the deep, deep division that we are experiencing in our country, uh, there is just this increasing sense of weariness that we're all feeling. As if, as if every day in 2020 uh, brings with it like another weight placed on our shoulders and people are just, <sighs> so many of us don't even know how to describe exactly what we're feeling. We, um, we are deeply aware that our friends, our families, our neighbors are going through the uncertainty of this time. We're experiencing loneliness. It's taking a toll on us and we're feeling the weight of it all. And I was reminded of this, uh, this week, something I read a while back from a poet named David White who wrote these words. He said, the antidote to exhaustion is not rest, but wholeheartedness. The antidote to exhaustion is not rest, but wholeheartedness. Are you all in? I think that resonates with us deeply because what we're all going through is a type of weariness that doesn't stem from overaction. In fact, if anything, it's just the opposite. You know, when we've been told work from home, go less places, uh, it's certainly not the busyness of life that is leading to this deep sense of dread and weariness, and yet we're experiencing it now more than we ever have. It's a type of weariness that can't be erased by a long weekend or even a couple weeks away. I was away for a week and I got back and before you know, three days were out, I was like, oh gosh, I'm back at it again. The antidote to exhaustion is not rest, but wholeheartedness. Because this weariness doesn't stem from overactivity. The reality is that we feel so blah because we are living with deeply divided hearts uh, halfway through 2020. The circumstances of 2020 have rocked us to the core. Every single one of us in one way or another uh, is living with the experience of something that we value deeply and depended on having been stripped away from us, whether it's something tangible like health or finances or freedom of movement, these things that we could say, this is specifically what I've lost, or the harder intangible, the things that are harder to name, the intangibles, but are still very real, like a loss of confidence in the future or a loss of understanding about what is going on in our world and our ability to control our circumstances. Things that we depend on have been stripped away from us, and the result is that we are living with a divided heart, and it is exhausting. And friends, this morning I want you to hear good news, because 1 Peter is the perfect manual to help guide us through this difficult time. 
because it was written to people going through something very similar to what we're experiencing. It's written to Christians in the first century in, a, uh, in, the, in the area of Asia Minor, like I've, I've said in the past, who are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. Their world has been turned upside down, and it is deeply disorienting to them. And Peter shows them and he shows us that the solution to their exhaustion and anxiety and the exhaustion and anxiety that we're dealing with is not just getting through it or getting on top of it or somehow like kicking our circumstances back into their proper place so that we can be in control of them again. The solution, Peter is saying, for Christians is to reevaluate the entirety of our lives in terms of who Jesus is. And that's true of this entire book, but it's especially true in this passage that we're looking at this morning because what Peter's doing here is amazing. What he's doing in this passage is he is combining the, the most like lofty theology with the most mundane realities of our lives. This section of 1 Peter sandwiched right in the middle is uh, the, the kind of highest Christology, the theology of who Jesus is that Peter gets into as he identifies Jesus as the suffering servant that Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 53. It's sandwiched right in the middle of the most ordinary uh, sorts of relationships as he talks about uh, our relationships both at work and at, the, and, and at home. He connects these lofty truths about the nature of who Jesus is to the most ordinary aspects of our lives, our relationships at work and in our homes. Because what Peter is doing is he's giving us a holistic account of the Christian life. And what he's saying in this book is that the Christian life isn't just a life where we go with the flow and do what everybody else is doing and we just have these extra beliefs um, on top about who Jesus is. But what, what, he's, what he's saying is that when you become a Christian, that changes every single thing about your life. Every aspect of our lives are changed because of the reality of who Jesus is. If you're a Christian, every single thing about your life, from the most important thing to the most ordinary pedestrian aspect of your life, is different. So today, we're looking at this passage about Christian, Christian freedom at work and at home, and this, like I said, is really part two of last week's sermon where we talked about the big picture of Christian freedom and we, we talked about the, the reality that Christian freedom is not freedom to do whatever you want. Um, Christian freedom is a change of master. It is, it is becoming a servant because everybody's got to live for someone. Christians are people who have become the servants of the one who brings life. We have embraced life-giving restrictions. That's what freedom truly is in Christ. If you missed that, go back and listen to it because everything that I'm going to say is predicated on that. But today what I want to do is dig into what Christian freedom looks like in terms of our work and marriage. And again, the gospel turns everything upside down here because the reality for us, the way that we think about work and marriage in our world is we think about work and marriage in terms of self-fulfillment. You know, what am I going to do that's going to allow me to um, gain as much comfort, as, as much stability, or even meaning for myself 
uh, as possible? Who am I going to marry so that I can have maximum enjoyment in life? We tend to think of our work and our marriages in very worldly categories. But when we go through a season like we have in this year when everything is turned on its head, the futility of that way of looking at work and marriage begins to uh, show itself to us. Because we we're going through this time when all of our jobs in one way or another are, are being shaken and our relationships are strained. And so it's no wonder that we're freaking out because we look at these things to give us life. But Peter is saying, I want to give you a different way to experience your work. I want to give you a different way to experience your marriage, a way that you don't become the slave of work and marriage because you are looking to them to justify your existence and bring you meaning and purpose in life. Say, no, I want to give you a different way to experience work and marriage. I want you to look at them in a, in a way that will allow you to be truly free I want to invite you to look at your work and your marriage in terms of how you can enter into these relationships and submit. And I know that that makes no sense at all, right? So let's dive in and look at what this passage says. So the first thing, let's just talk about the elephant in the room. Uh, the word submit or to be subject to. Uh, what in the world does that even mean? Um, chapter 2, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters. Chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Peter is saying that freedom at work and in the home looks like submission. What? What in the world is he saying? I mean, I realize that to modern ears, that doesn't just sound factually incorrect. It actually sounds a little bit immoral to us. Why? is the Bible telling us uh, to be submissive. What I want you to see, however, in this passage is that what Peter's doing is subtly subversive and brilliant. Um, it, it would have been really good news to the first century readers of this passage, especially those servants and wives reading these words for the first time. Their eyes would have lit up. They would have been so encouraged and overwhelmed. And so we can't, from the vantage point of the 21st century, look down on these words. Uh, we have to try to understand what Peter is actually saying here. Because what he's doing is actually bringing profound dignity to, um, especially to women and to servants. In this section... Peter talks about four areas of life, and kind of not, not just in these verses, but in, in this middle part of the chat, in the middle part of the book. Peter talks about four areas of life. He talks about the political, the economic, the home, and the church. And in each section, what Peter does is he begins by addressing those who would have, at least in the perception of the culture of the time, had the lower uh, social standing. So Peter says, um, he begins by addressing the, the, the person with a lower cultural standing in, in first century Rome. So in the political, he says that citizens submit to the government. At work, he says servants submit to their masters. At home, wives submit to their husbands. But he also says husbands in a deeper way submit to your wives in, in chapter 3, verse 7. And then he says in the church, Christians submit to one another. In each case, 
He is addressing the, the, the person with the lower, at least perceived, social standing. Citizens, servants, and wives. And he says the same thing to each of them, that true freedom is found by submitting. Submitting. And this is subtly genius because he's actually uh, dignifying each of these groups of people in a way that was unheard of in first century Greco-Roman culture. We have to understand that in this time, uh, women, wives, and servants were little more than personal property to their you know, masters or husbands. Uh, the Roman world was very concerned with honor and order and had a very hierarchical understanding of relationships. And uh, uh, Greco-Roman culture had this fear that if the household began to break down, that, that culture, society would break down as a whole. And so many people, there, there's evidence of this, many people in the ancient world uh, wrote what were called household codes to... Um, talk about how, uh, we should, how, how people should relate to each other in order to contribute to a flourishing society. But in these household codes, uh, wives were never talked to. Servants were never talked to. They were only spoken about. Uh, they were not considered free moral agents, women or um, servants in this culture. Servants and wives would have received the instruction through their husbands or through their masters. The man of the house would have received the instruction and then passed it on. And here, Peter is talking to women and to servants directly. He's saying, the word of God is coming to you. That was unheard of in that time, in that place. But more than that, Roman society assumed that whenever, uh, whatever the man decided went for the rest of the household. One of these um, household codes that I mentioned was written by Plutarch, who was a Greek philosopher. And in one of his writings, this is what Plutarch said. He said, a wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in, and to shut the front door tight upon all other rituals and superstitions. The man was completely in charge. Whatever the husband or the master decided went for everyone, but Peter is saying not so among Christians. In addressing servants and wives directly here, he is assuming that there are marriages where there is a wife who has become a Christian and her husband is not. Or a husband has become a Christian and his wife is, is not a believer. Or there is a servant who has become a Christian but his master is not a believer. And what are they to do? What, how, are they, how, are they supposed to, how are they supposed to live given those realities? Peter is rejecting the cultural assumption that it is completely up to the husband or to the master. He is giving a wide range of, of, of ap freedom of application here. It's interesting, that, I mean, consider the complexities of what does a wife do who's become a Christian if her husband's not a, uh, if he's a pagan? Does she go to church on Sunday or does she stay home? Peter doesn't actually answer those specific questions 
but he gives the wives and these servants, he dignifies them by saying, here's the principle, now figure out how to apply it in light of your Christian freedom. He's given a wide range of freedom because what he is doing is he's implying here the fundamental equality of all people in the sight of God. And this is maybe the most, uh, um, the most surprising thing because we hear the word submission and we're like, come on, uh, what is it, like 1820 or something? Think about what the word submission implies. The word submission implies that there are two people of equal dignity, value, and worth in the sight of God. And one of them is making a choice to take a lower position. Uh, the word submission implies the equality of the one submitting. You know the reason that the uh, Greco-Roman household codes never addressed women or servants? It was because they weren't considered equal. They were considered inferior. They, weren't, um, they were considered property. They, they weren't asked to submit because they had no choice in the matter. They weren't, they weren't invited to submit because they were just considered to be inferior. But to submit implies that two people are of equal worth and value. I, I've said this before, but a $1 bill does not submit to a $10 bill because they're not of equal value. Uh, a $10 bill is just more valuable. It has more inherent value than a $1 bill. Um, there's no submission unless there is equality. And so if we only hear these words with our modern ears, we completely misunderstand it. The first century servants and wives who, have read, who would have read this passage would have seen it or heard it as deeply affirming and empowering. Peter, Peter dignifies them deeply. The second thing, though, that I want you to see in this passage, having talked about this reality of what does submission, this word that sounds heinous to us, what does it mean? What I want you to see here is, and again, in general, I'm, I'm going to only very uh, have the time to touch on this kind of in a, in, a, in a general sense, but what does submission at work and at home actually look like? Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Interesting, he does not say, women submit to men, right? He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Servants, be subject to your masters. To submit means to put yourself in a position of service to someone else. The assumption in our world is that we should try to get everything we can out of our relationships, which is another way of saying, in every relationship, we're trying to get the upper hand. Peter is turning that on its head and saying, no, no, the way that Christians interact in the world because we are free is that we, we take the lower position. We take the lower position. We tend to think in terms of the circumstances in life, uh, of our circumstances, if things are going well at work, if things are going well at home, then life is great. But when those things begin to falter and struggle, then, then, uh, then our lives feel like they're falling apart. But what Peter is telling us, when he tells us to choose the lower position, he's making it clear that whatever position we are in, we can fulfill God's calling on our lives. And we can do this, and here's probably the biggest shocker in this passage, even when we are being mistreated. See, I think we might be able to get our head around the idea of saying, okay, I will submit to you, I will serve you, 
as long as everything is kind of coming back to me one way or the other, as long as things are going well for me. But Peter says we can submit to others even when we are being mistreated. Chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. He says, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? These are not the greatest working conditions he's describing here. But on the other hand, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Listen, let me just be clear. He is in no way condoning evil behavior. He is not condoning the exploiting of people. But what he is saying is that in every situation, uh, consider your witness in the way that your in the way that you respond. If every time we are slighted, we cry foul, we end up looking like whiners, even when we are right. But if when we are wronged, whether by our boss or our spouse, or in some general sense, we are wronged by others, because we are Christians, he's not saying when you just you know, like make a mistake and you, are, you suffer for that. But he's saying when you are wronged because you are a Christian, and we simply endure, then we are truly free. Because what we are doing is we're, we're displaying that this other person's behavior does not rule my life, and that makes the gospel look beautiful to everyone, even if they don't actually share our beliefs. In 1948, near the 38th parallel on the Korean Peninsula, there was a small village, and in that village there was a pastor named Sun Yang Wan. And uh, it was after the Korean War, uh, well the Korean War was not uh, uh, in progress at the time, but, but one day communists, uh, a gang of communist kids came into this village and they found this pastor's house and they began taunting his son. And his other son came out to defend his brother and these, this gang continued to taunt them, and eventually it got violent, and these two boys were murdered and martyred for their faith. Sometime later, the government arrested a man named Chai Sun, and they discovered that he was one of those uh, children, the gang that had been responsible for the death of Pastor Sun's boys, and Pastor Sun, overcome with grief, did not attend the trial. He was in mourning for his sons, but when he heard that Chai Sun had been um, convicted and had been sentenced to be executed, Pastor Sun sent word that he did not want the murderer to be executed, but rather he wanted to adopt this man as his son. And when Chai's son experienced forgiveness for what he had done instead of justice, and he was taken in as a son by the one that he had wronged so terribly, he quickly experienced the forgiveness of Jesus and became a Christian himself. Two years later, he went to the Bible Institute of Korea, after which he became a pastor himself. Peter says, likewise, wives, 
Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. These words apply to wives, of course, they apply in a general sense to the way that we all as Christians view our relationships. There is no power in self-protection. This is not to condone wrongdoing, but as Christians, Peter is saying, when you defend yourself against wrongdoing, the gospel seems impotent. But as Christians, we bear witness to the gospel when in freedom we give up our rights to serve others, even when doing so means suffering unjustly. The Bible does not in any way condone exploitation, but rather encourages us to subvert it, to drain the power of it by submitting. Submission at work and at home. The final thing I want to say in this point, I've got to say something about verse 7 because uh, I'm sure that there will be questions. Verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What, what does that mean? Uh, when Peter uses this phrase, the weaker vessel, what he means is the physical weakness of women in comparison to the strength of men. And so Peter is sort of um, indirectly addressing physical abuse, but the, the broader point that he's making, he, he's clearly saying that in this society where women's standing is weaker than men in the, in the first century, that men who use their authority to run roughshod over the women in their lives will not be heard by God. Even when they do so with society's full approval. What Peter is saying is, men, do not use your strength to dominate, but rather use your strength to bring honor. To honor those in your lives, especially your wife, and the other women in your lives. In our time, there is tremendous pressure uh, for men especially to seek validation at work and then to come home and lapse into this uh, sort of passive posture uh, the moment we're off the clock. And Peter, what Peter is saying here is that men have tremendous power to encourage and bless our wives and our children and even our friends. Instead of taking the path of least resistance, he says, you are free to use your words to honor, to encourage, and to dignify others. Christian freedom is not about self-indulgence. It's not about using your work and your relationships to gain an upper hand or to show that you are good enough. It's not an opportunity for self-fulfillment. Christian freedom means using your status in Christ to serve. So the final question that we need to ask is why? Why would we even want to live this way? So the third thing that I want you to see in this passage is the cross-shaped life. The cross-shaped life. The central thrust of Peter's message in the whole book is this. If you are a follower of Jesus, your life is marked by Jesus' life. The pattern of Jesus' life becomes the pattern of the way that you live your life 
Karen Jobes, in her commentary on uh, 1 Peter, she says, Peter points to Jesus as the model for how to live a dignified, significant life of freedom, even in the midst of the most oppressive situation. I mean, think about who it is that's writing these words. These words encouraging us to bear up under suffering. It's Peter. I mean, what do you know about Peter from the Gospels? Uh, this is Peter who, in the Gospels, is this loud, brash, don't think, just do it now, just say something. Uh, this is Peter who once tried to correct Jesus when Jesus said, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and there I'm going to suffer and die. Jesus, or Peter comes and he's like, Jesus, no, 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 let me, let me straighten you out on this one. Uh, Peter, the disciple who most strongly objected to the idea that Jesus would suffer and die. This is Peter who the night that Jesus was arrested ran away and denied even knowing who Jesus was three times rather than be implicated in the suffering of Jesus. This is the one who is writing these words and what is clear here, what Peter now understands is that suffering was central to the work of Jesus and so Peter is encouraging us to embrace the reality of suffering for the sake of Christ. He says that we are to endure patiently unjust suffering because Jesus suffered unjustly for you. And in so doing, Jesus not only gives us an example, but he actually gives us the power to do it. Look at verses, um, chapter 2, verses 21 and following. He says, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Peter says, Jesus is your example. He suffered unjustly for you. He suffered unjustly for you. And Peter says, this is our calling. He doesn't say this is the way life goes sometimes. He doesn't say uh, this is your fate. He says this is your, your vocation. We follow the one who suffered unjustly. Jesus, I said this last week, is the most free human being who has ever walked the face of the earth. And he used that freedom to suffer for you. He came to set you free from sin and death on the cross. And now he's calling you to live a cross-shaped life that you might patiently endure wrongdoing in order that you might be a witness to Christ for the sake of others that they might come and find him as well. Jesus is your example, but he also gives us the power to obey. Verse 24, Peter continues, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Do you know what freedom feels like? True freedom feels like not having to worry about anything. Peter is saying because of Jesus 
you don't have to worry about anything. The guilt has been removed because Jesus bore your sins on the cross. If you're going to live a truly free life, you've got to know that when you suffer, it's not because God is angry with you. And the cross assures you that Jesus died in your place. So when you suffer, it's not because God is punishing you. Jesus took your place. You have no guilt because on the cross, Jesus bore your sins for you. Therefore, you know that God is not mad at you. But it's not only that. The power, it's, it's not just that, the, that the guilt of sin has been removed from you, but the power of sin in your life has been broken. Peter says that, uh, that we might die to sin, but also that we might live to righteousness. Your actions in this world are not the thing that brings you success or validation or worth or dignity. The way that you live in this world is no longer an attempt to find safety, security, or comfort because you have the righteousness of Christ. You no longer need the upper hand in every relationship because you have the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, he smiles and he says, well done, good job. And when you go to work or when you go into marriage, and you enter into those arenas not trying to find validation or justification or comfort, then you can give your life away and you will be truly free. Friends, suffering is not the final word. The pattern of the Christian life is marked by the life of Jesus. And it would be tempting to just finish here, but I want to leave you with one more thought because... The pattern of the Christian life is the pattern of the life of Jesus. And, and, and what, what we've basically just said is Jesus lived and then he suffered and he died. So you should live and not be afraid of suffering. But that is not the final word on the life of Jesus, is it? Because the life of Jesus is he lived and he died and then he rose again. And that is the pattern of life that marks yours as well. Suffering, friends, is not the final word. So let me jump forward a little bit in First Peter. We'll come to this again in a few weeks, but finish by reading First Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Friends, if you are going through 2020 and you're wondering, when is this? going to be over. If you're anxious, if you're stressed, if you're just feeling blah, listen to this. Cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. We can submit to uh, our bosses at work, to our spouses in marriage, because ultimately we're submitting to God Almighty. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. I was talking to a friend uh, recently who's a pastor in Colorado, and he was saying the last couple springs there have been these like massive hailstorms in uh, where they live in Colorado. And he said to the point where you know cars are getting damaged by the just these hail coming down. And he said, I got to the point where every night I went to bed and I couldn't sleep because I was so anxious 
that I was going to hail and our car was going to get damaged and then I'd have to deal with that. And then he said, and then I realized I could just park it in the garage. I could just park my anxiety in the garage. And friends, when I read this passage, what I hear is an invitation to park your anxiety under the mighty hand of God. Park your stress, park your frustration under the mighty hand of God. How do you do that? Lean into the hurt. What is it in your life right now that is frustrating to you? Don't run away from it, but bring it to Jesus. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, because at the right time, he will exalt you. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. To live like this is a life of true freedom. Would you pray with me? Oh Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for all that you have done to allow us to live a life of freedom. Jesus, would you bring us one way or another, under the mighty hand of God. Set us free from our sin, from our guilt, from our shame. Thank you for the cross. We pray that your example uh, would show us the way, that it would give us the power to live lives of uh, submission to others. That by doing so, we might tell the world of the greatness of the gospel, we pray in your name of Jesus.